Section 3 of Celebrated Crimes, Volume 7, Part 2. Countess de Saint-Geran by Alexandre Dumas, translated by George Burnham Ives. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Section 3. The Countess, passing into her apartments, caught her foot in a carpet and fell heavily on the floor. At the cries of a footman all the household was astir. The Countess was carried to bed. The most intense alarm prevailed, but no bad consequences followed this accident, which produced only a further succession of visits from the neighboring gentry. This happened about the end of the seventh month. At length the moment of accouchement came. Everything had long before been arranged for the delivery, and nothing remained to be done. The Marquis had employed all this time in strengthening Madame de Bouille against her scruples. He often saw Louise Goyard in private, and gave her his instructions. But he perceived that the corruption of Baulieu, the house-steward, was an essential factor. Baulieu was already half gained over by the interviews of the year preceding. A large sum of ready money and many promises did the rest. This wretch was not ashamed to join a plot against the master to whom he owed everything. The Marchioness, for her part, and always under the instigation of Monsieur de Saint-Mazin, secured matters all round by bringing into the abominable plot the Gwinnett girls, her maids, so that there was nothing but treason and conspiracy against this worthy family among their upper servants, usually styled confidential. Thus, having prepared matters, the conspirators awaited the event. On the 16th of August, the Countess de Saint-Geran was overtaken by the pangs of labor in the chapel of the chateau, where she was hearing mass. They carried her to her room before mass was over. Her women ran around her, and the Countess Dowager with her own hands arranged on her head a cap of the pattern worn by ladies about to be confined, a cap which is not usually removed till some time later. The pains recurred with terrible intensity. The Count wept at his wife's cries, and many persons were present. The dowager's two daughters by her second marriage, one of whom, then sixteen years of age, afterwards married the Duc de Ventador, and was a party to the lawsuit, wished to be present at this accouchement, which was to perpetuate by a new scion an illustrious race near extinction. There were also Dame Saligny, sister of the late Marshal Saint-Geran, the Marquis de Saint-Maison, and the Marchioness de Boye. Everything seemed to favor the projects of these last two persons, who took an interest in the event of a very different character from that generally felt. As the pains produced no result, and the accouchement was of the most difficult nature, while the countess was near the last extremity, expresses were sent to all the neighboring parishes to offer prayers for the mother and the child. The holy sacrament was elevated in the churches at Moulin. The midwife attended to everything herself. She maintained that the countess would be more comfortable if her slightest desires were instantly complied with. The countess herself never spoke a word, only interrupting the gloomy silence by heart-rending cries. All at once, Madame de Boya, who affected to be bustling about, pointed out that the presence of so many persons was what hindered the countess's accouchement, and assuming an air of authority justified by fictitious tenderness, said that everyone must retire, leaving the patient in the hands of the persons who were absolutely necessary to her, and that to remove any possible objections, the Countess Dowager, her mother, must set the example. The opportunity was made use of to remove the Count from this harrowing spectacle, and everyone followed the Countess Dowager. 
Even the countess's own maids were not allowed to remain, being sent on errands which kept them out of the way. This further reason was given that the eldest being scarcely fifteen, they were too young to be present on such an occasion. The only persons remaining by the bedside were the Marchioness de Bouille, the midwife, and the two Quinet girls. The countess was thus in the hands of her most cruel enemies. It was seven o'clock in the evening. The labors continued. The elder Quinet girl held the patient by the hand to soothe her. The count and the dowager sent incessantly to know the news. They were told that everything was going on well, and that shortly their wishes would be accomplished, but none of the servants were allowed to enter the room. Three hours later, the midwife declared that the countess could not hold out any longer, unless she got some rest. She made her swallow a liquor which was introduced into her mouth by spoonfuls. The countess fell into so deep a sleep that she seemed to be dead. The younger Quinet girl thought for a moment that they had killed her, and wept in a corner of the room till Madame de Bouille reassured her. During this frightful night, a shadowy figure prowled in the corridors, silently patrolled the rooms, and came now and then to the door of the bedroom, where he conferred in a low tone with the midwife and the Marchioness de Bouille. This was the Marquis de Saint-Maison, who gave his orders, encouraged his people, watched over every point of his plot, himself a prey to the agonies of nervousness which accompany the preparations for a great crime. The dowager countess, owing to her great age, had been compelled to take some rest. The count sat up, worn out with fatigue, in a downstairs room, hard by that in which they were compassing the ruin of all most dear to him in the world. The countess, in her profound lethargy, gave birth, without being aware of it, to a boy who thus fell on his entry into the world into the hands of his enemies, his mother powerless to defend him by her cries and tears. The door was half opened, and a man who was waiting outside was brought in. This was the major domo Balieu. The midwife, pretending to afford the first necessary care to the child, had taken it into a corner. Balieu watched her movements, and, springing upon her, pinioned her arms. The wretched woman dug her nails into the child's head. He snatched it from her, but the poor infant for long bore the marks of her claws. Possibly the Marchioness de Bouille could not nerve herself to the commission of so great a crime, but it seems more probable that the steward prevented the destruction of the child under the orders of Monsieur de Saint-Maison. The theory is that the Marquis mistrustful of the promise made him by madame de bouille to marry him after the death of her husband desired to keep the child to oblige her to keep her word under threats of getting him acknowledged if she proved faithless to him no other adequate reason can be conjectured to determine a man of his character to take such great care of his victim Balius swaddled the child immediately put it in a basket hid it under his cloak and went with his prey to find the marquis they conferred together for some time, after which the house-steward passed by a postern gate into the moat, thence to a terrace by which he reached a bridge leading into the park. This park had twelve gates, and he had the keys of all. He mounted a blood horse, which he had left waiting behind a wall, and started off at full gallop. The same day he passed through the village of Echerol, a league distant from Saint-Geron, where he stopped at the house of a nurse, wife of a glove-maker named Claude. 
This peasant woman gave her breast to the child, but the steward, not daring to stay in a village so near saint Geron, crossed the river Allier at the Port de la Chaise, and calling at the house of a man named Boucard, the good wife suckled the child for the second time. He then continued his journey in the direction of Auvergne. The heat was excessive. His horse was done up. The child seemed uneasy. A carrier's cart passed him going to Riom. It was owned by a certain Paul Biotillon, of the town Augipierce, a common carrier on the road. Balieu went alongside to put the child in the cart, which he entered himself, carrying the infant on his knees. The horse followed, fastened by the bridle to the back of the cart. In the conversation which he held with this man, Balieu said that he should not take so much care of the child did it not belong to the most noble house in the Bourbonnais. They reached the village of Che at midday. The mistress of the house where he put up, who was nursing an infant, consented to give some of her milk to the child. The poor creature was covered with blood. She warmed some water, stripped off its swaddling linen, washed it from head to foot, and swathed it up again more neatly. The carrier then took them to Riom. When they got there, Balieu got rid of him by giving a false meeting place for their departure, left in the direction of the Abbey of Lavoine, and reached the village of Descouteau in the mountains between Lavoine and Thiers. La Marchioness de Bouille had a chateau there where she occasionally spent some time. The child was nursed at Descouteau by Gabrielle Mioni, who was paid a month in advance, but she only kept it a week or so, because they refused to tell her the father and mother, and to refer to her place, where she might send reports of her charge. This woman, having made these reasons public, no nurse could be found to take charge of the child, which was removed from the village of Descouteau. The persons who removed it took the high road to Burgundy, crossing a densely wooded country, and here they lost their way. The above particulars were subsequently proved by the nurses, the carrier, and others who made legal depositions. They are stated at length here, as they proved very important in the great lawsuit. The compilers of the case into which we search for information have, however, omitted to tell us how the absence of the major-domo was accounted for at the castle. Probably the far-sighted marquis had got an excuse ready. The countess's state of drowsiness continued till daybreak. She woke bathed in blood, completely exhausted, but yet with a sensation of comfort which convinced her that she had been delivered from her burden. Her first words were about her child. She wished to see it, kiss it. She asked where it was. The midwife coolly told her, whilst the girls who were by were filled with amazement at her audacity, that she had not been confined at all. The countess maintained the contrary, and as she grew very excited, the midwife strove to calm her, assuring her that in any case her delivery could not be long protracted, and that, judging from all the indications of the night, she would give birth to a boy. This promise comforted the count and the countess dowager, but failed to satisfy the countess who insisted that a child had been born. The same day a scullery maid met a woman going to the water's edge in the castle moat, with a parcel in her arms. She recognized the midwife and asked what was she carrying and where she was going so early. The latter replied that she was very inquisitive and that it was nothing at all. But the girl, laughingly pretended to be angry at this answer, pulled open one of the ends of the parcel before the midwife had time to stop her and exposed to view some linen soaked in blood. "'Madame has been confined, then?' she said to the matron. "'No!' replied she briskly she has not the girl was unconvinced and said 
How do you mean that she has not, when Madame the Marchioness, who was there, says she has? The matron, in great confusion, replied, She must have a very long tongue if she said so. The girl's evidence was later found most important. The countess's uneasiness made her worse the next day. She implored with sighs and tears at least to be told what had become of her child, steadily maintaining that she was not mistaken when she assured them that she had given birth to one. The midwife, with great effrontery, told her that the new moon was unfavorable to childbirth, and that she must wait for the wane when it would be easier as matters were already prepared. Invalids' fancies do not obtain much credence. Still, the persistence of the countess would have convinced everyone in the long run had not the dowager said that she remembered at the end of the nine months of one of her own pregnancies she had all the premonitory symptoms of lying in, but they proved false, and in fact the accouchement took place three months later. This piece of news inspired great confidence. The Marquis and Madame de Bouille did all in their power to confirm it, but the Countess obstinately refused to listen to it, and her passionate transports of grief gave rise to the greatest anxiety. The midwife, who knew not how to gain time, and was losing all hope in face of the Countess's persistence, was almost frightened out of her wits. She entered into medical details and finally said that some violent exercise must be taken to induce labor. The countess, still unconvinced, refused to obey this order, but the count, the dowager, and all the family entreated her so earnestly that she gave way. They put her in a closed carriage and drove her a whole day over ploughed fields by the roughest and hardest roads. She was so shaken that she lost the power of breathing. It required all the strength of her constitution to support this barbarous treatment in the delicate condition of a lady so recently confined. They put her to bed again after this cruel drive, and seeing that nobody took her view, she threw herself into the arms of Providence and consoled herself by religion. The midwife administered violent remedies to deprive her of milk. She got over all these attempts to murder her and slowly got better. Time, which heals the deepest affliction, gradually soothed that of the countess. Her grief, nevertheless, burst out periodically on the slightest cause but it eventually died out, till the following events rekindled it. There had been in Paris a fencing-master who used to boast that he had a brother in the service of a great house. This fencing-master had married a certain Marie Pigoreau, daughter of an actor. He had recently died in poor circumstances, leaving her a widow with two children. This woman, Pigoreau, did not enjoy the best of characters, and no one knew how she made a living, when all at once, after some short absences from home, and visits from a man who came in the evening, his face muffled in his cloak, she launched out into a more expensive style of living. The neighbors saw in her house costly clothes, fine swaddling clothes, and at last it became known that she was nursing a strange child. About the same time, it also transpired that she had a deposit of two thousand livres in hands of a grocer in the quarter, named Raganet. Some days later, as the child's baptism had doubtless been put off for fear of betraying his origin, Pigoreau had him christened at St. Jean en Greve. She did not invite any of the neighbors to the function, and gave parents names of her own choosing at the church. For godfather, she selected the parish sexton named Paul Marmieux, who gave the child the name of Bernard. La Pigoreau remained in a confessional during the ceremony and gave the man ten sous. 
The godmother was Jeanne Chevalier, a poor woman of the parish. The entry in this register was as follows. On the seventh day of March, 1,642, was baptized Bernard, son of hmm, and hmm, his godfather being Paul Marmieux, day-laborer and servant of this parish, and his godmother Jeanne Chevalier, widow of Pierre Thibault. A few days afterwards, La Pigoreau put out the child to nurse in the village of Tourcy-en-Brie, with a woman who had been her godmother, whose husband was called Payard. She gave out that it was a child of quality which had been entrusted to her, and that she should not hesitate, if such a thing were necessary, to save its life by the loss of one of her own children. The nurse did not keep it long, because she fell ill. La Pigoreau went to fetch the child away, lamenting this accident, and further saying that she regretted it all the more, as the nurse would have earned enough to make her comfortable for the rest of her life. She put the infant out again in the same village, with the widow of a peasant named Marc Peguin. The monthly wage was regularly paid, and the child brought up as one of rank. La Pigoreau further told the woman that it was the son of a great nobleman, and would later make the fortunes of those who served him. An elderly man, whom the people supposed to be the child's father, but who Pigoreau assured them was her brother-in-law, often came to see him. When the child was eighteen months old, La Pigoreau took him away and weaned him. Of the two, by her husband, the elder was called Antoine, the second would have been called Henri if he had lived, but he was born on the 9th of August, 1639, after the death of his father, who was killed in June of the same year and died shortly after his birth. La Pigoreau thought fit to give the name and condition of this second son to the stranger, and thus bury forever the secret of his birth. With this end in view, she left the quarter where she lived, and removed to conceal herself in another parish where she was not known. The child was brought up under the name and style of Henri, second son of La Pigoreau, till he was two and a half years of age. But at this time... Whether she was not engaged to keep it any longer, or whether she had spent the two thousand livres deposited with the grocer, Ragnet, and couldn't get no more from the principals, she determined to get rid of it. Her gossips used to tell this woman that she cared but little for her eldest son, because she was very confident of the second one making his fortune, and that if she were obliged to give up one of them, she had better keep the younger, who was a beautiful boy. To this she would reply that the matter did not depend upon her, that the boy's godfather was an uncle in good circumstances, who would not charge himself with any other child. She often mentioned this uncle, her brother-in-law, she said, who was major-domo in a great house. One morning, the hall-porter in the Hotel de Saint-Geran came to Baillieu and told him that a woman carrying a child was asking for him at the wicked gate. This Baillieu was, in fact, the brother of the fencing-master and godfather to Pigoreau's second son. It is now supposed that he was the unknown person who had placed the child of quality with her, and who used to go and see him at his nurses. La Pigoreau gave him a long account of her situation. The major-domo took the child with some emotion and told La Pigoreau to wait his answer a short distance off, in a place which he pointed out. Value's wife made a great outcry at the first proposal of an increase of family, but he succeeded in pacifying her by pointing out the necessities of his sister-in-law, and how easy and inexpensive it was to do this good work in such a house as the Count's. He went to his master and mistress to ask permission to bring up this child in their hotel. A kind of feeling entered into the charge he was undertaking which in some measure lessened the weight on his conscience. 
The count and countess at first opposed this project, telling him that having already five children, he ought not to burden himself with any more. But he petitioned so earnestly that he obtained what he wanted. The countess wished to see it, and as she was about to start for Moulin, she ordered it to be put in her women's coach. And when it was shown her, she cried out, "'What a lovely child!' The boy was fair, with large blue eyes and very regular features. She gave him a hundred caresses, which the child returned very prettily. She at once took a great fancy to him and said to Balieu, "'I shall not put him in my women's coach. I shall put him in my own.' After they arrived at the Chateau of saint Geran, her affection for Henri, the name retained by the child, increased day by day. She often contemplated him with sadness, then embraced him with tenderness, and kept him long on her bosom. The Count shared this affection for the supposed nephew of Balieu, who was adopted, so to speak, and brought up like a child of quality. The Marquis de Saint-Mazon and Madame de Bouille had not married, although the old Marquis de Bouille had long been dead. It appeared that they had given up this scheme— the Marchioness no doubt felt scruples about it, and the Marquis was deterred from marriage by his profligate habits. It is moreover supposed that other engagements and heavy bribes compensated the loss he derived from the Marchioness's breach of faith. He was a man about town at that period, and was making love to the demoiselle Jacqueline de Lagarde. He had succeeded in gaining her affections, and brought matters to such a point that she no longer refused her favors except on the grounds of her pregnancy and the danger of an indiscretion. The Marquis then offered to introduce to her a matron who could deliver women without the pangs of labor, and who had a very successful practice. The same Jacqueline de Lagarde further gave evidence at the trial that Monsieur de Saint-Maison had often boasted, as of a scientific intrigue, of having spirited away the son of a governor of a province and grandson of a marshal of France. That he spoke of the Marchioness de Bouille said that he had made her rich, and that it was to him she owed her great wealth, and further, that one day, having taken her to a pretty country seat which belonged to him, she praised its beauty, saying, C'était un beau lieu. He replied by a pun on a man's name, saying that he knew another beau lieu who had enabled him to make a fortune of five hundred thousand crowns. He also said to Jacqueline, Sir de la Barbezon, when posting with him from Paris, that the Countess de Saint-Geran had been delivered of a son who was in his power. The Marquis had not seen Madame de Bouille for a long time. A common danger reunited them. They had both learned with terror the presence of Henri at the Hotel de Saint-Geran. They consulted about this. The Marquis undertook to cut the danger short. However, he dared put in practice nothing overtly against the child, a matter still more difficult just then, inasmuch as some particulars of his discreditable adventures had leaked out, and the Saint-Geran family received him more than coldly. Balieu, who witnessed every day the tenderness of the Count and Countess for the boy Henri, had been a hundred times on the point of giving himself up and confessing everything. He was torn to pieces with remorse. Remarks escaped him which he thought he might make without ulterior consequences, seeing the lapse of time, but they were noted and commented on. Sometimes he would say that he held in his hand the life and honor of Madame de Marchioness de Bouille, 
sometimes that the count and countess had more reasons than they knew of for loving Henri. One day he put a case of conscience to a confessor thus. Whether a man who had been concerned in the abduction of a child could not satisfy his conscience by restoring him to his father and mother without telling them who he was. What answer the confessor made is not known, but apparently it was not what the major-domo wanted. He replied to a magistrate of Molin, who congratulated him on having a nephew whom his masters overburdened with kind treatment, that they ought to love him since he was nearly related to them. These remarks were noticed by others than those principally concerned. One day a wine merchant came to propose to Ballieu the purchase of a pipe of Spanish wine, of which he gave him a sample bottle. In the evening he was taken violently ill. They carried him to bed, where he writhed, uttering horrible cries. One sole thought possessed him when his sufferings left him a lucid interval, and in his agony he repeated over and over again that he wished to implore pardon from the Count and Countess for a great injury which he had done them. The people round about him told him that was a trifle, and that he ought not to let it embitter his last moments. But he begged so piteously that he got them the promise that they should be sent for. The Count thought it was some trifling irregularity, some misappropriation in the house accounts, and fearing to hasten the death of the sufferer by the shame of the confession of a fault, he sent word that he heartily forgave him, that he might die tranquil, and refused to see him. Valier expired, taking his secret with him. This happened in 1648. End of section 3 Recording by John Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia